This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Kevin McDonald's Kevin McDonald Show is brought to you by the Forever Dog Podcast Network. Check out more original comedy podcasts at foreverdogpodcasts.com. And if you want to hear more episodes of Kevin's show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a nice review. And now, please enjoy Kevin McDonald's Kevin McDonald Show, live from Union Hall in Brooklyn, New York, with special guests Sashir Zameda, Josh Gondelman, and musical guest 5J Barrow. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am your announcer for tonight's show. Sorry the show started with me walking on and just announcing myself, but the producers of this podcast said they couldn't afford an announcer for the announcer. So I, the announcer, would have to announce the announcer, which is me, the announcer. Ladies and gentlemen, I am proud to present your announcer. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, announcer. You're welcome, announcer. Welcome to Kevin McDonald's Kevin McDonald Show. I am your announcer for the evening, Art Fiddle, unpublished author and part-time lifeguard. Lifeguarding is how I earn my food money, but how I earn my soul money and what I really am is a writer. I was born to write. Prose is my life. I will write every chance I get, even during work at my lifeguard job which unfortunately may have helped cause the Rockwood Elementary School regatta drownings last summer, which subsequently led to the Rockwood community riots. Yes, but I am a writer, and write I must. Children drown every day. Life goes on. Blah, blah, blah. Mr. McDonald, obviously a fan of my work, has asked me to write everything I say in tonight's episode. Let me explain what my job is as announcer. Mr. McDonald is doing an audio podcast, and as the world knows, well... One 750 millionth of the world knows is that Mr. McDonald is a physical comedian. So to make sure that our podcast audience does not miss out on any of the laughs, I am to describe all the physical antics that Mr. McDonald does tonight. Of course, all the prose is my own. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm round of applause for Mr. Kevin McDonald! And then, the son of an inglorious, crucified, dental equipment salesman entered. He entered with a breadth of white face and a pallor of blue irises. He waves to the audience, looking like an 84-year-old surfer about to ride his last wave. A wave called America. His eyes screaming, goodbye, Woody Guthrie. Goodbye, Eleanor Roosevelt. Hello, cast of The View. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming out to Kevin McDonald's Kevin McDonald's show. Yes, yes, yes. 
He greets his golden and sullen jury of peers known to the heavens as the audience with a voice that could come from any victim of darkness that has been forced into a death march at the end of a lost war. His soul screams out, Must it always be Normandy on June 6, 1945, whenever I tell a joke? Why am I the D-Day of comedy? Woo, it's going to be here in New York. I love it here in New York. I love it here in New York. I love it here in New York. The comic moves funny, knowing that it, it, that is all that keeps the wall of silence from falling on him and deafening the world. And, like the rotting corpses of all comedians, he knows his days are numbered like a line of sad meat eaters in a butcher shop with no roof in the rain. Somewhere in the world, Dane Cook is naked on a sofa having his palm read. And Kevin McDonald is here, the way he was born. Dead. Dead, dead, dead. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, another big hand for your star, Mr. Kevin McDonald. Wow, thank you. Thank you. What exciting prose. Huh, ladies and gentlemen, exciting pro- It's like having Evelyn Waugh introduce me. Wow, Evelyn Waugh, that is quite a compliment. I have masturbated on many of his books, and one day, perhaps I'll read one. You should. They're good. Hello, everyone. Hello. Uh, uh, thank you for coming to the show. Uh, in spite of listening to all the other podcasts. And if you haven't heard my other podcasts, I'm, of course, kidding. They've all been great. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, tonight on the podcast, I'm going to try something a little different. Comedy! Tonight I'm going to try some comedy. Uh, I'm just kidding, of course. I'm a comedian, and we will kid uh, for the next hour and ten minutes. Um, uh, being funny is a good talent to have. It's always served me well, uh, especially when you're young, because when you're funny... You know it early on. You know what you're going to be in your life. Um, uh, you joke and people laugh. You joke and they make noises. I make people make noises. I am a noisemaker. So I knew at a very young age that I was funny after I made people make a lot of noises. Um, I was lucky. Uh, carpenters don't get a lot of noises, except for the, oh my God, what a horrible shelf noise, which is something like this. Ooh. And that's not a good noise. I have been a noisemaker since I was 11. It's my living now. I do something funny. I get a noise. I figure I make around 350 per noise. Um, tonight I'm hoping for five or six noises per minute. It's an hour and 15 minute show, so that's 412.5 noises. Uh, $3.50 per noise means that if everything works out tonight and I get all my noises, I will make 1,443 hard-earned noisy dollars. Yes, I'm a noisemaker. I have to continue to make noises to make sure I feed my family. If I, if I don't make enough noises, um, we won't be able to pay our mortgage, buy clothes, or groom ourselves. And my wife and kids and I will be naked homeless people with beards wondering how Game of Thrones ends. <laughs> I am a noisemaker. Be it by spit take or by funny Hitler impression, I am here to make you make noises. You know, my entire life I knew I was going to be a comedian. Just not a stand-up comedian. I couldn't tell a joke and my life depended on it. Um, uh, though uh, I don't know any jokes, though there is one I'm going to tell tonight that my Uncle Brian used to tell when I was a kid. Um, uh, he really did. This is a true story, and I'm going to tell the joke. Uh, it's the only joke I remember in my whole life, though I had to write it down. Um, a man who lost an eye goes to a fake eye shop, uh, but the only, one, uh, the only eye he could afford was the eye made out of wood. So he buys it, and he puts it in, and he's happy with it. A week later, he's feeling good about himself, and he goes to a party where he sees a woman with a hair lip. 
Uh, since no one wanted to dance with her, he feels bad. He walks up to her and says, would you dance with me? She's so happy that she cries out, would I? Would I? At, at this point, the man turns red and screams, hair lip! Hair lip! <laughs> Uncle Brian, Oakville, Ontario. Thank you very much, Uncle Brian. That is an excellent joke. Um, and my cousin Louise had a hair lip, and she had to hear that 10,000 times in her life. Um, but no, no one-liner joke-telling for me. I chose sketch comedy for my noise-making career. Sketch comedy uh, is where you think of a premise and turn it into a sketch. But sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, your premises never become sketches because you never figure out what to do with them. I have many, many cobweb-collecting premises that I failed to turn into sketches. Sketch ideas dating back to the early 80s. What does one do with a Walter Mondale parody? Well, I'll tell you what you do, ladies and gentlemen. I once and for all admit defeat. Those premises that I still can't figure out are all now officially dead. And tonight, I will bury my dead premises in front of you, ladies and gentlemen, because you are now attending a premise funeral. <laughs> doom, doo-doo-doo-doom, doo-doo-doo-doom. Doom, doo-doo-doo-doom, doo-doo-doo-doom. Ch, 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 doom. These are the sketches that have died in vain. We will now bury these sketch remains. I wanted to help the world write some sketches that they'd laugh at for sure but I never finished them so now they're dead now they're dead these are the sketches that I couldn't write doom doo -da -da doom doo -da -da doom these are the sketches that die tonight. Hear ye, hear ye. These following premises for sketches given birth to but never finished by Kevin McDonald will now get up and make their way to sketch comedy heaven, where John Belushi and Atunces the Cat sketch that never got an ending await them. Oh, God of comedy! I give to you the following premises. May they find eternal peace with you. Doom, doo -doo -doo -doom, doo -doo -doo -doom. Ch -ch -ch. What if a man is $10 short of being a millionaire? <laughs> what does he do? Go big on the street? In a tux? Next to homeless people? I don't know. I never figured it out. May you make your way to the Lord and find one of Bob Hope's writers in nomine patris et fili. Doom, doo-doo-doo-doom, doo-doo-doo-doom. What if a man was kicked out of the KKK for being an asshole? See, that's funny because everyone in the KKK is an asshole. In secular, secularum. Doom, doo-doo-doo-doom, doo-doo-doo-doom. What if, instead of robbing a bank with a gun, a, a man robs a gun store with, with money? 
Give me all your guns. This is a purchase. Dance. 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 That's as far as I got. It might get a laugh because of Kevin's high-pitched voice. <laughs> Dominus Vobiscum. I will now finish this burial, premise god, comedy god, with the lowest of the low. Parody ideas. Parody ideas! Worse than guitar comics! <laughs> Instead of the odd couple, what about the odd schizophrenic? A man who's both messy and tidy. Sanguis Christi. Instead of the movie Psycho, what about a movie called Psycho? Somatic. A man is taking a shower. There's nothing wrong with him, but he screams anyway. Anima Christi. And finally, the portrait of Dorian Gray. To stop the aging process, Dorian Gray has a magical artist paint his portrait so that only the portrait will age and not him. Only when he brings women over, uh, they just want to meet the man in the portrait who's aging so handsomely. Well, well the real Dorian Gray still looks like a young nerd. <laughs> that sounds too wordy and I don't know any more Latin. Comedy God, take these premises and write sketches for them. Then sell them to the Mad TV reboot. <laughs> doom, doo 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 doom, doo 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 doom. Ch, ch, ch. These are the scenes that I give to you. Doom, doo 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 doom, doo 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 doom. Ch, ch, ch. But please don't steal them, God, I swear I'll sue. Doom, doo 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 doom, doo 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 doom. And that's the burial song, which Mr. McDonald wrote himself. Except for all the Latin, which of course I wrote. Dead language, my ass. Excellent! Thank you, Alex, thank you! Um, and uh, thank you, and now a sketch that I did finish writing. We're gonna do a sketch for you that I did write. Sorry, sorry I wrote it. Um, uh, this is a true story. Uh, it's a sketch that didn't do very well, so I'm blaming you people and uh, reading it to you. Um, I wrote it a couple years ago when, the, when this wonderful, wonderful woman, Lorne Michaels, um, <laughs> let me, she was like an aunt to the kids in the hall. And she let me be a guest writer on her show for a few weeks. Uh, that was fun. Uh, her show, by the way, is Saturday Night Live. Um, and so I wrote a, a very Saturday Night Livey sketch. Very, very Saturday Night Livey. Well, it, well, it's a talk show, for Christ's sake. It's Saturday Night Livey. Um, uh, don't tell the other kids in the hall that I wrote a talk show sketch. They'll shave a picture of Phil Donahue in my head or something. <laughs> it's also a Saturday Night Live is that it's way too long. So that's good for you guys. A long talk show parody coming your way. It's just what the world needs. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy my talk show sketch. Don't tell the other kids in the hall. And now it's time for the very special 30th anniversary edition of the Phyllis Phyllis Reeserman Show, the best daytime talk show since Oprah, or at least one of the many talk shows that have started since Oprah. I am your announcer, Arthur Voice. Yes, it's just a coincidence that my last name is uh, Voice, but, but it's a happy coincidence. Unlike when the band Dead on the Highway crashed in their tour bus, on the highway, 
unhappy coincidence. But let's get back to the happiness because it is now time to celebrate 30 years of the Phyllis Phyllis Reeserman Show. And here's Phyllis Phyllis! On the talk show set. We see the host of the show, Phyllis Phyllis Reeserman, sitting behind her talk show desk. We hear polite applause from the studio audience. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited about tonight's show. Wow. Has it really been 30 years? Wow. You know, it's been very hard to keep this talk show going. It's been a tough, tough, hard, dirty, dirty, hard 30 years. When I first started, there weren't a lot of female talk show hosts around. When I first pitched my talk show to the networks, they wanted to know why a woman should host a talk show. I said, because I'm a woman. I'm a woman in a man's world, and I have to work harder because no one cuts you any slack when you're a woman in a man's world. They weren't totally convinced, and I said, you want to know what else? She bends below the desk and, by the sounds we hear, seems to be unscrewing something. Because I have a prosthetic leg! She pops back up, holding her prosthetic leg. When you have a prosthetic leg, you have to work twice as hard as the next talk show host, because you have half as many legs as they do. For God's sake! In the 90s, I had a quarter of the leg power of Regis and Kathy! She bends back down behind the desk and screws her leg back in. And I think I thrived for 30 years because the audience knew that they would only get the truth from me. You can pick that up on TV. You can't lie to your audience and stay on the air for 30 years. And why would I ever bother to lie? I have a... She bends down and unscrews again. Prosthetic leg. She pops back up with the leg. I have nothing but the truth. I walk around on the truth. She screws her leg back in. Yes, keeping a show on for 30 years has been a constant struggle. You have to work harder and be four times as entertaining as the next talk show host, especially when you have a sidekick. We cut to William, the sidekick, sitting on the far end of the couch. He looks straight at the camera, open-mouthed in horror, shock, and sadness. Who is manic-depressive? Wild Bill McKinney, everybody. My, side my sidekick for 30 depressing years, minus the six years he was institutionalized. The audience applauds, which causes Bill to look even more horror-stricken. How's it going, Wild Bill? Bill can just manage to sadly shrug, and then after a few moments, to weep. Of course he can't talk. Of course he weeps every 12 minutes. 30 years of a sidekick who is too sad to talk. It's a miracle we're still on the air. I've had to work harder. All I do is work. There was a two-year period where I never made it home or once saw my high school-aged daughter. I told my husband, go ahead and have an affair. I understand. Just don't leave me. I'm working too hard for you to leave me. <laughs> I set him up with a news anchor from, from Orlando who had a thumb missing. And the three of us have been very happy for 12 years. Not that I'm ever home to see them. I work too hard. I've had to work hard, ladies and gentlemen, and I've had a sidekick who is... We cut to Wild Bill, who is now lying face down on the floor with his shirt off. A manic depressive. And... She bends down and starts unscrewing... A prosthetic leg. She pops back up with the leg. You have to work harder. 
our guest tonight is an excellent actor who has appeared in such TV shows like The Mentalist and How I Met Your Mother. Ladies and gentlemen, give a big hand for John Foote. Hello, everyone. Hello. I'm pretty happy to be here, but not as happy as I would be if I were on Jimmy Fallon. No, I, I totally understand how you feel. And for my part, I have to wonder how I managed to stay on air so long when my celebrity guests are just working actors. Yes, I've been very lucky to be able to work for the past nine years without having to take a job in the real world. And what are you working on now, John? I am touring this wonderful country of ours in a production that is an all-white version of The Wiz. <laughs> You've got to ease on down, ease on down that road, yes! Ease on down, ease on down that road, sir. Woo! 30 years. And may I say, Phyllis Phyllis, that you have been an inspiration with all the working actors you've had on the show year after year. Just one working actor after another. It's been a complete inspiration to all working actors, knowing that if we just make, if we just make a living, we can get on a talk show. Well, your talk show. <laughs> well, I'm glad you feel that way, John Foote. I tried my best and worked like a pig to make this show entertaining for 30 years. For 30 pig years. I've done nothing but do pig work to keep this very moderately rated pig talk show on the air. I've made many sacrifices over the years. I've lost a child. I mean, I literally lost a child. One moment I turned around and she wasn't there. And I really didn't have the time or the energy to organize an effective enough search for her. Yes, I've made many sacrifices over the years, but I've had to. She bends down and pops up holding her leg. I have a prosthetic leg. Now who wants to win a 30th anniversary car? You, you, you. She points at a few audience members of her mildly cheering audience with her leg. Well, we'll be giving that Honda Civic away after the show. I want to thank everybody supporting me and the show for these past 30 years. I hope to be on for another 30, but I doubt I will be alive in three years due to the toll of what working to keep the show on has done to my body. And now we'll end the show with another reason why I have to work so hard to keep this show going, the Phyllis Phyllis Reeserman House Band. Good night, everybody. We cut to the house band, consisting of several moderately talented 12-year-old children all playing their instruments moderately well. The end. That's the sketch! That's the sketch! A big hand for Sashira Sameda! She saved the sketch! She saved the sketch! Uh, and I just want to say that that sketch was picked, but it was cut in the dress. And I'll never forget Lauren Michaels giving me the note, uh, the prosthetic leg is too big, scaring the audience. Can we get a smaller leg? And we couldn't, uh, so we cut it. Um, thank you so much for doing it. Yes, thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you. Oh, yeah, we don't need a mic stand. Uh, applaud! It's Shashir Samana! Well, uh, you know what? I'm going to ask this out of order, because we just did a Saturday Night Live sketch. I asked Mike Myers this, and I have no idea what it's like. I just wrote for two weeks as a guest writer. What's... What's the first day of Saturday Night Live like? Like the first day, are you scared? Are you intimidated? Are you excited? Is it everything? Is it crazy? Are you nervous? Can you not sleep the night before? Yeah. Next question. <laughs> no, um, well, my first day, um, I, I got hired in the middle of the season. And 
So they were already in full swing. That's even worse. That's being a new kid in school. I know. But everyone was so, like, willing to help me out. I mean, I think it was nice that I came in just by myself. If I came in with a group, maybe they would. I would have got lost in the shuffle. But it was nice that I was just me. So the people were like, oh, we can actually, like, tell you what to do and explain things. Uh, but my first day, like, wasn't a normal first day because we had pitch meeting on Monday. Uh, but it was delayed by hours because uh, someone's plane didn't come in. Or I don't, I don't know if it was Lauren or the host, but like everyone kept being like, it's not normally like this. And I was like, I guess I'll just like walk around. <laughs> so I like walked around <laughs> Times Square. And I was like, because I, I was like, I don't know. I don't want to just like sit and wait. I'm just like antsy. And then. Do you have a premise already to uh, pitch? Did I have a premise? I can't remember what my first one was that I pitched. Hi, everybody. Tim Heidecker here with huge news. We have a terrific episode of Office Hours Live prepared for you. We had the great stand-up comedian Kyle Kinane come in and a very special in-studio music session from legendary Emdu Mokhtar. You're not going to want to miss this one. You can find it on your podcast app of choice by going to Sears or Macy's and getting an iPod and then coming home, charging it up, and listening through your app. Mine was uh, KKK, uh, kicking an asshole out of the KKK. That That's a good one. I don't have an idea. But, uh, and then, um, and it's like a, it's Lauren's office, but uh, they squeeze you into a, it's a small room. Yeah. There's no room for everybody. Did you have to stand because you were the new kid? No, I sat on the floor. I didn't realize that there was like a, um, like a whole system to how people sit. Like, so we do pitch in Lauren's office and you, and we're like surrounding the desk on the floor and people are on chairs and couches and stuff. And I tried to sit on the couch because there was open space and I like cushions. And one of the produ producers was like, oh no, um, uh, that's, uh, that's taken. And I was like, okay, whatever. And then I sat on the floor and then I, there were like a couple other things where like no one fully explained like the tradition-y things to me where they're like, there's just like certain places you can't sit or like look like look at <laughs> or like stand. Or times when to talk. Yeah. And I would just like break all the rules because I didn't know. Because like, you know, I've, I've never worked a job like that where there But you seem to be very charming, so you got away with it. Yeah. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. It was like cute and dumb. And then eventually people were like, so you can't do that. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I was going to ask a lot of Saturday Night Live questions, uh, but I did a, we just did a sketch, so it's making me think of it. Sure. So I'm just going blank now because I'm talking too much and I'm forgetting. Oh, I know. Um, the first time an idea was picked uh, of yours, what was that like? Oh, well, let's see. That was, I, I had pitched it and, it, and it was my first idea that went from pitch. Actually, a couple ideas I, I had where I pitched it and it went all the way to air. Um, but it was a little bittersweet because I, it was a uh, Tina Turner like riverboat sketch where it was like we were Tina Turner in person. It was Sarah Silverman hosted. We were riverboat uh, dancers, and then we're just talking about. I, I really the idea came from like lost a good job in the city, um, and just like talking about how we regret that <laughs> and how we wish we were back in the city. But and we. This was funny. Thanks. I, I think it was funny, and it aired, and then we got accused of plagiarism because 
there were, uh, there was a similar sketch at the Groundlings, but it wasn't online, and we I wasn't in LA to see it, <laughs> but there was like a lot of hubbub and like SNL's always stealing sketches, and it's like we don't have time to do that, <laughs> but. Um, I always say there, uh, like they say in music, there's only three chords to comedy. Like, like there's only so many ideas. Yeah. Um, I, I, you're too young, but I did a sketch on the Kids in the Hall show. The Kids in the Hall was a comedy sketch from the 90s. Oh. Yes. <laughs> the Beatles were a rock band from the 60s that revolutionized music. Um, <laughs> I'm so old. You're the perfect age. You're not too young. I'm too um, <laughs> Uh, but I'm the... Uh, I know! Kids in the Hall. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you're a comedian. I, I would have guessed that you did. Um, but I did a sketch uh, called Buddy Holly, where, um, where it's Buddy Holly's last day before he gets on the plane, and he's a prick to everybody. Um, <laughs> like, goodbye, Richie Valens, you diarrhea king. Like, and I'm really like... It's, and uh, it's sort of a popular Kids in the Hall sketch, but a, a great comic from Toronto named Mike McDonald, no relation, um, he uh, came to me one day um, uh, at the Montreal Just for Laughs, and he said, uh, I know you took Buddy, but you're a nice guy, so I'm not going to do anything. I thought that was so weird. I didn't know, and apparently he does a Buddy Holly idea, and I've never seen it. But it seems like I'm lying, because when I was a kid, he's like 10 years older than me, uh, I snuck into the stand-up club, and I saw him all the time. Maybe I subconsciously stole it. You never know. That happens sometimes. Yeah, you never know. Maybe I d It's just hitting me now. Maybe well, I did. Maybe I should apologize. But also maybe you didn't. Like that happens sometimes where there's just something in the zeitgeist where we're all thinking the same thing. Like there's like a few sketches. I mean, even before I got on SNL, I've seen things where I'm like, oh, they must have came to UCB and saw my sketch. And it's like, no, they didn't. They didn't come to this basement at 11 p.m. on a Wednesday to see my sketch and then put it on TV. Then took the elevator to 30 Rock. And <laughs> yeah, like, I got and it. I got it. I've been looking. I found the comedian to, yeah. to copy. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Forget Saturday Night Live for a second. Your name. How yeah. did you get your name? I read about how your parents picked your name. I yeah. think it's an amazing story. Um, I had a vodka before the show, so I may cry. Tell me. I don't know if it's emotional, but my, uh, my parents... I it's for me because I'm a... Ah, uh, I see. My parents are Trekkies, and uh, it's from Star Trek. And uh, yeah, they were watching a, an episode, season two, episode 50, and... <laughs> Captain Kirk was flirting with this alien princess, as he does. And he gave her a rose, and she goes, oh, we have something like this on my planet, except it's made out of crystal, and it's called Sashir. And my parents are like, yes! <laughs> That'll be our daughter. That's a beautiful name. Yeah. Now, do you think in a spiritual, subconscious way that defined your life in a way? Uh, like, it could go two ways. It could be somehow you were destined for show business mm -hmm. or is it somehow you were destined to be an alternative kind of uh, person. Do you think at all or is it just... Uh, yeah, I don't know exactly how it shaped me, but I do think it made me, like... Um, I mean, I, I am into, like, sci-fi things. Uh, I had nothing to say. <laughs> You're just... You I was just nodding. Wanted, I put my mic up to nod. Mm. <laughs> Um, and yeah, my parents were so like confidently nerdy that I I was like, I guess oh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. If I steal that, I'll I'll say you said it. Okay. Because I, I may use that for the rest of my life, but sure. I'll, but I'll always give you credit. Is that okay? I probably won't even remember that I said it. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm sorry. Keep going. That's such a great phrase. Yeah. So like, it made me feel confident to also be nerdy and just like the stuff I like and 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 dive into it and not feel like, oh, this might be weird. But I was self-conscious about it when I was younger, because, you know, kids are. And 
my, when I told people, my name's from Star Trek, like kids in elementary school would make fun of me and be like, your parents are nerds, you're a nerd. And then I would lie and be like, oh no, it's, a, it's just a crystal from far away. <laughs> like, very far away. <laughs> Don't look it up. <laughs> oh, that's amazing, they would say. Yeah. I, 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 I thought I had left a question, then I forget it. When you age, you forget things a lot. Mm. That's good. Um, oh, well, here's, I'm, gonna skip, I'm skipping ahead. I feel comfortable for some reason, so I'm skipping all over my question list. Ooh, great. Don't worry, it'll be over soon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, I'm not the best interviewer. Um, I think you're doing great. Thank you very much for lying. It's very sweet. Your dad was in the Air Force. Yeah. Now, does that mean you moved a lot? Yes. Now, did that, because I, what am I doing? Snapping my foot. Because <laughs> that, comedians say all the time, because they moved a lot, they yeah. learned to be funny, mm -hmm. um, to fit in. Did that also? Um... Yeah, I guess. Hmm. I never thought of it like that. I did move around every two years, and I was always the new kid. But I don't know if I used humor as a tactic to, like, fit in. Because I was never, like, the class clown or anything like that. I was just shy kid. But I would be jokey with my friends. I would, like, make close friends. I would always get, like, one best friend. And then we would be, like, like just whisper each other's faces and be <laughs> super clicky. Um, but, yeah. Were you one of those com comics that were shy as a teenager? Yeah. Very. So, I th so that's the one-person audience thing. What's that? That's why the one-person audience thing. You, I guess you, you, so, yeah. yeah. I would whisper jokes to one person and be like, oh. it's just for you. Here's an ad-lib question. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I'm, I'm listening, and I'm trying to be a better interviewer, and I'm building on that, but I'm still bad because I cut you off. But I did think of a new question, and I'm forgetting it because I'm talking too much. Uh, what, uh, what was the first time you uh, performed in front of an audience? What was that? Oh, man. Well, I've been like in church choir and like church plays and stuff like that since I was like nine or something. What about comedy? Or performing, not singing? Um, well, I guess the first time I realized I wanted to make people laugh was in high school. I did this government camp and it was like, it was two girls from each high school in the state, in Indiana. It was Hoosier Girl State. And we went to a college campus for the summer for a few weeks and learned about the government and then we kind of ran our own government. And I ran for lieutenant governor of my party. Uh, one, and then we had to have like a big speech in front of the whole campus, and it was like 800 girls and all the counselors, and that was the biggest crowd I've ever spoken in front of at the time. And I wrote my speech, and I put a joke at the top, and I think it was like, there was like an elevator that was like a little shady in one of the, the dorms that was like, it would like kind of like rattle when you were in it. And so I was like, you better vote for me before you die in this elevator, and people <laughs> lost their mind. They were just like, dying this is <laughs> this is the funniest thing they ever heard and then i kept going in my speech and they kept laughing at me even though i didn't write more jokes but they just thought i was funny and i was like this feels great this <laughs> i love this see noise making yeah. we're lucky as comedians we hear noises and we know that we're good at something yeah yeah and then People kept saying afterwards, they're like, you should do something where you speak in front of people and make them laugh. But no one knew of like stand-up as a job. They're just like, just do, the, do that. Speak in front of people and make them laugh. Good luck. And so <laughs> it wasn't until years later when I was like, oh, I guess I could do that. Did you do uh, public speaking? Is that a thing in the States? Or is that just a Canadian thing? Uh, where elementary school kids in grade five and six, they're, uh, they pick three who can talk. And then they, um, the, they pick the best one of the school, then he goes against other schools in the district, then they go in the city, and they make it to the country. Um, I had to do that. Did you ever do that? Is that an American? I guess we had, like, debate, like, debate teams. 
That's uh, that's sort of different, but it's similar. Yeah, kind of like that. Um, Were you on a debate team? I was for like ver- a very short amount of time, and I remember I I did one that was like I don't remember the format of it, but you had to be in a roundtable situation and kind of like prove your point about something, and we had some sort of environmental subject. And I just kept bringing up Captain Planet as like my source. <laughs> like, I don't remember what I was saying, but I was just like, well, you know, in Captain Planet, they say you gotta snip all the little pieces of the of the pop the when when soda comes on those little plastic things, or else it's gonna destroy the whales. And we're like, I don't know what I was saying, but um, yeah, I quit because I was like, I'm not. This is not my thing. <laughs> I don't like confrontation. But it probably got you comfortable in front of audiences. Yeah. Here's a sci-fi thing. (laughs) Captain Planet reminded me of sci-fi. This is just for you and I. It's a personal thing. This will bore them. Uh, Do you read old sci-fi? Have you read Dune? I just read Dune. No, I haven't. Frank J. Herbert. You've got to write. uh, Right. You've got to write the sequel to Dune. All right. (laughs) You have to. uh, You have to read Dune. Who's read Dune? Sorry, but oh, you said something about political. Are you? You seem to be also a political person. Yeah. You are like a celebrity ambassador for the ACLU. That's amazing. Uh, How did that happen? Thank you. Yeah, the ACLU uh, reached out to me like, a couple years ago, and they were like, "Oh, oh, this one." I'm sorry, cutting you off, but in a way, I'm listening. I love this excitement. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> they saw you, and uh, how do they know? And they were obviously their instincts are right. But what what do you think gave them the instincts to ask you to do this? I think maybe someone saw my work and then just thought, "Oh, her like ideals and what she talks about kind of is in line with what we're working on." So I. I'm the celebrity ambassador for their women's rights project. Now keep telling your story. I won't cut you off. <laughs> so they, they asked you to do it. Yeah. And I mean, this is a, conti- a continuation of the story. You didn't cut me off. Oh, good, good, good. Um, uh, yeah. So they just, they, I, we met a few times and we talked about like what my goals are as a, a, like a performer and an activist and what they want to do with this project. And um, now I'm, I'm helping them try to get the word out to people just so, because the ACLU has been working for such a long time and they're they're very legal so i'm trying to make it more digestible for people to understand what we're working on and like what issues to try to highlight um and so for the women's rights project it's a lot of like things like healthcare for women or like equal pay or um just like where to go when you like if, if you want to get an abortion but you can't because this hospital has religious affiliations or whatever um, or breastfeeding in public. There's like a litany of things that they're working on, and I'm just trying to like use my platform and, and use my audience to be able to sh- show like, hey, look this way, and maybe this concerns you in some sort of way, and maybe you can like donate or like, wow. like tell other people what's going on, or or just know more about it. So when you talk to other people, they can be more educated about it too. Do you foresee a future in strictly politics, mm-hmm. a la Arnold Schwarzenegger? I don't, but who but knows? Know. Yeah, I don't want to like limit myself and just say no. But when I was younger, I actually did have a dream that I'd be a president. I'd be like, I, I'm going to be the president. <laughs> yeah, I still could. Um, but you know, but then I thought about it. And I was like, I think you had to be crazy to do that. <laughs> so when I lose my mind, I'll run for the presidency. <laughs> This sounds like a bad stand-up joke, but I, I'm stupid, and I honestly thought this. If Hillary won, what would Bilbin called? First man? See? I, don't, I like think there stand-up. is probably a name for it, right? Or it I don't know. Is. Someone must First gentleman, know. maybe? First gentleman? First lady, first gentleman. Thank you very much. Are for you lying? Are you smart making that up, or is that true? <laughs> Get out of here! Uh, no, that's a good guess. First yeah, gentleman. Yeah, that's a good guess. 
First, I have a couple more first, questions, I swear. I'm going out of order. Uh, how did you come up with the character Janelle? Oh, that, uh, that Streeter Seidel's a writer for SNL. And we, yeah, I didn't have the character before I got to the show. So Streeter and I used to write it together a lot. And um, he, we kind of like came up with this ca character together. But he was like, I think it'd be really funny if you were a teenager who was, who like came into her body earlier than she was mature. So like I was maybe like 14, 15, and I was doing these like dance tutorials on YouTube. And all the comments were from older men, just like, eh, like sleaze balls. And I'm just like, it's fun. And my, when we first did it, Chris Rock was hosting, and he was my dad. And he would come in and be like, you have to stop. Like, this is dangerous. I don't want these internet creeps looking at you. And uh, it was just so fun to make this, like, kind of obtuse, pure, naive child. Uh, and then in this kind of salacious atmosphere, which is real <laughs> i mean it's a real thing that happens uh online and then we did another one with my mom where she was like into it and she it, where taraji p henson played my mom and uh she was like i can dance <laughs> and like i can dance with you and it would like embarrass me um but yeah we and we tried to like make this uh kind of a virtual thing that happened in real life too where we ha we created a snapchat for janelle we oh, created wow. Uh, Instagram account, um, but like, you know, it just falls, everything falls apart. <laughs> I swear to God, we're almost done, but I keep thinking of questions, you're so good. Um, uh, this is an insider comedian question. You mentioned the writer who helped you write that. Yes. Have you established a relationship with him, like Adam McKay and Will Ferrell? Like, are you still writing together now? No, we're not. It was like a good, you know. Should we call him tonight? <laughs> I should be like, hey, do you want to keep writing together? Because <laughs> that happens. I mean, that's, yeah. I, I'm trying to think of other combinations, but that's. Uh, well, I do have a writing partner. Her name's Nicole Byer, and uh, we met through the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Yes, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, and uh, we we started doing improv together, and we wrote a web series together that we both star in called Pursuit of Sexiness, and we did two seasons of that, and we still have a third season that is written, but we just it's just kind of sitting there. We thought about combining all the episodes and making it a movie, but we'll see. But oh, I mean, you should do that. Yeah. Um, uh, what's your favorite thing to do? Stand-up comedy, improv, because I know you're into improv, used mm -hmm. to be, or, or sketch comedy, of I those three. There could be something else you like better, but I'm just asking those three. Stand-up, sketch comedy, or improv? I think stand-up, because I get paid the most from stand-up. <laughs> valid, that's valid. And I like it because it feels like a very, just kind of, pure way of performance. Like, I can go anywhere and do it. I don't right. need props, I don't need other people. Sometimes I don't even need a mic. I just need my voice and an audience, and I can just give my message to the people and, like, just give my, what I think is funny, out to them uh, and get an immediate reaction. Do you ad-lib a lot? Do you use improv? Uh, yeah, like I you do. You come with written material, but you, but you ad-lib a lot? That's sometimes, good. yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll talk to the audience and riff with them or, like, just... You know, if I'm thinking of an idea where I have like a loose idea of what the joke is, I'll just talk about it until I figure out the structure later. Um, so yeah, I kind of write on my feet sometimes. Excellent. Last question. Uh, what's coming up next for you? Um, I'm going on tour a little bit. I'm going to be in the Midwest, and I <laughs> t tell your friends in the Midwest. <laughs> um, I'm going to go to Just for Laughs in Montreal, and uh, oh, excellent. Yeah. I was born there. Who cares? No, but that's cool. Uh, and I've never been before. I was born there. <laughs> sorry, keep going. I'm uh, so sorry. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and I have a monthly show, uh, Six Years and Made a Party Time, that has been at U Union Hall a bunch and is now at the Bell House. So the next one's July 16th. And it's a fun party show where we have stand-ups and we have party games where we get the audience involved and music and it's just fun. I like doing it. She's just amazing. She's amazing. I saw your stand up on YouTube. I loved it. Oh, thank you so much. I meant to say that during the interview, not during the applauding part. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Thank you. Thank you thank very you. much. Thank you. So she's the man she saved my sketch. Kevin, you know the prosthetic leg is too big. It's scaring the audience. I say that every day of my life to myself. All right, uh, now I'm going to tell an old Kids in the Hall story. That's all I have, Kids in the Hall stories. Nothing else in my life ever happened. <laughs> yes, an old Kids in the Hall story. Uh, now that we're old, uh, that means all our stories are old. Uh, I'm sure in a few years we'll have new stories to tell, but they'll be about how we borrowed $7,000 from one of our granddaughters. <laughs> in a few years, we don't have any granddaughters yet. Um, uh, this story takes place uh, during the early 90s when we had our TV show, Glory Days in the Bank of a Young... I don't remember the song. We were in our writing offices, writing sketches, as is our want. It was a hot summer day in Toronto. Uh, this is a true story, by the way. So we had uh, four or five electric fans on because it was hot. Uh, because our show wasn't a big enough hit to have air conditioning, uh, we were more electric fan popular. <laughs> I remember I was taking a break reading our fan mail. In those days, fan mail came in letters. Um, uh, and they were always the same. Uh, they were always the same. The, uh, I would read, uh, no one read them. I read every once. Um, the, the ones for Dave would say, Dave, you are the cutest boy in the world and make me laugh so much. Please marry me and I will make you happy forever. Uh, once for Bruce McCullough, I usually said, Bruce, you are dangerous and obviously live life on the edge. Take me, I will be your dark gothic princess with tattoos. My fan mail usually said, Kevin, you seem nice. Can you tell Dave I want to marry him? <laughs> True story. Uh, so I'm reading a fan mail uh, this particular day, and suddenly uh, my fan mail reading is interrupted by uh, Scott, who's standing at our front desk in the writer's room uh, that always had a basket of fruit on it, and he was screaming in anger, anguish, and despair. He screamed for seven minutes before he said one word. He was furious at us. He had just found out that his latest, greatest sketch ever had been cut out of the episode. He gathered the four of us by the desk to yell at us better. How dare you? How dare you cut this classic sketch of mine? All the customers last night in my favorite bar, Finger Palace, thought it was better than the photocopier sketch. Then he yelled the things that he always yelled at us. Breeders, breeders, you don't know what comedy is. You're too busy making children. You, you heterosexuals in a glass bottom boat. I still don't know what that one means. <laughs> then he turned to his writing partner, Paul Bellini, for support. Am I right, Paul? Thank you, four people that know about me. Uh, he said, am I right, Paul? Uh, but Bellini had already turned full coward and snuck out of the office on all fours. True story. Uh, for those of you who don't remember uh, or know, uh, Bellini uh, was not only Scott's writing partner, but he's the man in the towel that we poke with, uh, with a stick in this TV show. Uh, they were always writing together, always writing. Uh, they'd be at their desk that they shared. You always knew they were writing because there was always a waft of marijuana smoke ho hovering over their roofless cubicle. Uh, you would hear Scott dictating and Bellini typing. Uh, Scott would say a joke that he wanted Bellini to type. 
But the typing would stop, and there'd be a pause for a second. Then Scott would say, aren't you going to write that, Paul? No, Thompson. It's shit. <laughs> Shocked, Scott would uh, wittily retort by saying, oh, yeah, Paul? Well, you're fat! Fat, 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 fat! <laughs> and this would go on for days and days. <laughs> Paul and Scott, unfortunately, were workaholics. They wrote a lot, way too much. Uh, at a read-through, if, uh, if a kid in the hall brought four or five sketches in, that would be a lot. Scott would quite often bring in 15. Uh, one day, he brought in 27. <laughs> 27 12-page sketches. And he didn't use our office assistants. He would print and copy his own script. Uh, the copies would usually have uh, coffee stains on them. Um, one day, I'll never forget this, he had blood stains <laughs> on the copies of his sketches. Um, blood stains on 22 copies of a sketch um, uh, probably about a cup of semen that saves the world. <laughs> All the sketches were about that. <laughs> we were too afraid to ask uh, whose blood it was and where it came from. <laughs> Back to that day in my story in the office. Scott was so furious um, that he stopped screaming at us and menacingly walked up to a fruit basket. He picked up a banana and he threw it at the fan. <laughs> and it came back and splattered all over him in a million tiny little banana pieces. So he's standing there, completely covered in banana, still seething. He turns to all of us and says, not one laugh. Not one laugh. Remember, he's covered in banana. But we all bite our cheeks. I see a little blood drip down Bruce's tiny mouth. But Scott, but Scott wasn't finished. He ran around the office kicking things, still covered in banana. He kicked walls. He put a dent in a desk, my desk, of course. Then he saw a chair, and he drove his leg through a chair. And now his leg is stuck in a chair. And he's still covered in banana. And, and our sweet assistant, Rachel, who just wanted to help him, who, by the way, is the, uh, the, 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 the twin sister of Kiefer Sutherland. It has nothing to do with the story, but it's interesting. Rachel goes over and tries to help him and, and uh, tries to get him out of the chair and wipe the banana off him, but he turns to her and he cries, No, you don't. You don't. I will stay here covered in banana with my legs stuck in this chair until my scene gets back in the show. And he stayed there like a gay, Christ-like banana for the rest of the afternoon. And ladies and gentlemen, that's only the 17th best Scott Thompson is crazy story. <laughs> and now, that's the comedy part of the show. Now I'm very excited for a little mini concert. Are you ready for music? Please, I'll get this out of the way. Probably either way. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so excited. The sound check was so amazing. I have like a big hand for Five Tree Barrow! With your eyes all aglow 
watching you tell me all the things you know I can hardly wait That's why I went and saved the day That on private table in the back of your favorite place Got me on the edge of my seat Can't wait to save you
to let them know that my heart would stay with you if my body chose to go. Cause I've seen California days, New York City nights, Cleveland afternoons, Nashville's early morning lights, but nothing, oh nothing compares to the way you look tonight. Oh love, I have been waiting for you all my life. Thank y'all. 
All right. of love have been told upon the stage found and lost year to year and age to age oh boy meets girl girl falls in love then the boy goes away let the lights go down children gather round and let me tell you of the tale of lonely sarah brown oh Don't you cry. Oh.
Thank y'all very, very, very much. No, thank you very much. That's the show. That's the show. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank you. Keep applauding. Shashir Sameda. Shashir Sameda. She's so charming, it's crazy. Uh, 5J Barrel, 5J Barrel! Josh Gondelman, Josh Gondelman! Union Hall, Chrissy did sound, uh, Joe Alex, uh, the uh, Forever Dog, and Emily, who does something uh, assistant wise. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, good night. Maybe I'll see some of you tomorrow. Forever. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Brett Boehm. For more podcasts, please visit foreverdogproductions.com.